All right, so this morning's lesson, we are on lesson 14 of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And again, this has been adapted for Sunday school from Sinclair Ferguson's book with the same title, The Holy Spirit. And we started last week on the subject of the spirit of holiness. And this week, we're going to bring the spirit of holiness to a conclusion. If you remember last week, we talked about how sanctification really in its essence is likeness to Christ. It's a restoration to true humanness. If you will, it's a regaining of properly what we had in our humanity, and it's a restoration and even bringing it to its, to its glorious end or goal. We talked about the image of God, right, and, and that same idea being restored and taking it to its full completion at the day of uh, resurrection. Uh, We talked about the indicatives, right? The statements of reality or fact, and then the imperatives that are based on them, commands that flow from these realities given to us and our position with Christ. And then we worked our way through the Old Testament holiness, looked at a couple texts, then went to the New Testament and we started in a couple subjects or sub-subjects. And the first one was Christ sanctified for us, where we talked about the high priestly work of Christ and its implications for sanctification. And that's really where we're going to pick up, is we're going to pick up after uh, Christ sanctified for us, and we're going to complete this idea of the New Testament idea of holiness. Now... Uh, on your handouts, what I want to do is start with uh, our Baptist Catechism, and we're gonna, I'll read question 38, and then we'll respond together. So question 38, what is sanctification? Answer, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Excellent. And if we remember from last week, we had that excellent little phrase about sanctification being conformity to Christ, and Ferguson using the word Christiformity, right, or Christ-likeness. That is the intended goal and what completion will look like with sanctification. And does anyone remember, this is not meant to be rhetorical now, does anyone remember uh, the key text from last week? So I said, hey, this is the important text, and then I had to backtrack and said it wasn't the important text, but it's one of several important texts, but it's one I want you guys to remember. Do you remember said text from last week dealing with sanctification and image and the Holy Spirit? Yes, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Yep, awesome. That is, again, that's, to me, that's like, that's like our go-to verse. When we're talking about sanctification and the Holy Spirit, I want our hearts to just run to that um, and just glory in it. And um, excellent. So, so let's go ahead and get started on your notes. On your notes, you'll see our first heading, Participation in Christ. So we talked uh, a couple Sunday schools ago about union with Christ. And how union with Christ is really how, should we, uh, how we should interpret and understand how uh, Christ's redemption is applied to us. It is found in union to him, and that is done 
through the Spirit and by faith. And there's several really key texts when we talk about union with Christ. I would, again, refer you back to that Sunday school lesson from a couple weeks ago. But there's just one text I want to look at that I think has some really helpful things as we deal with the doctrine of sanctification. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we'll actually start a little bit before Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And um, we're going to break this up. So we'll start in Romans 5.20, and then we'll go to 6.11. And if I can have two volunteers, someone to do 5.20 to uh, 6.5. All right. And then who can do 6.6 to 6.11? All right. Crystal. All right. Jeremy, go ahead. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. All right, excellent. So look with me in verse uh, of chapter 6 and verse 1, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he's, and he's asking this question as a result of the dramatic climactic statements that he said about Adam and about Christ in Romans chapter 5. But I want you to think about this. How would you respond to Paul's answer? And not simply your response, right? A yes or no, but what support would you give? When Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What would that answer be, right? What kind of like comes to mind as you think of this? Well, no, that's preposterous. And then what would your reason be, right? Because I, I want us to look at this because I feel what Paul does here is he gives us this deep outworking of these realities about our union with Christ in contrast to our union with Adam. Instead, Paul connects us to our federal or covenant head, the Lord Jesus, as our representative. And we see this, right? We, we see this idea, right? Look in verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? 
right? So that immediate response is, it is an outworking of this truth or reality that we have by being in union with Jesus. In, in reality, what Paul's saying is, it is a contradiction for us to be united with Christ, who has died to sin, been raised to newness in life, to then have a life completely contrary to what you've been identified with, right? It is, uh, to, um, uh, to, to quote Ferguson, he says, the very idea of continuing in sin, the hallmark of the old life suggests the impossible, that the Christian can engage in a self-contradiction, denying his new life in Christ. And, and really, I think this is really brought out in verses 6 and 7. Look at me in verses 6 and 7. I like the way that Ferguson brings this out, where it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Well, how should we understand that old self? Well, the old self is referring to that former life, that life as we were identified in Adam, right? This is, this is going back to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. It's all that we were in Adam before we were united to Christ, right? We were in the flesh, under the dominion of sin, under the condemnation of the law, and destined for death. And that old self, like it says in verse 6, was crucified, right, with Christ historically, and this is existentially or, or um, realized within us in regeneration or the giving of new life and conversion when we turn and believe on the Lord Jesus. Now look with me a little bit farther in verse 6 where Paul says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And the body of sin here refers to the physical body. Uh, as Paul seems to allude to in Romans 7.11 and 7.24, where we have similar phrases. brings out this idea of the physical body. Ferguson says, The body seen as the instrument through which sin exercises its reign and masters our being. And then this phrase, right after it, where it says, might be brought to nothing. It's conveying this idea of being made powerless. The body of sin, that physical instrument which, which sin exercises its reign, is now made powerless. Uh, to use other phrases from the BDAG, it's um, invalidated. It's abolished, right? It's rendered powerless. Sin no longer can reign because the Spirit has united us to Christ in his death and resurrection. Slavery has been broken. When, if, if you will, when sin pulls on the chains, right, to get us to obey it as its master, those chains are broken. They are gone, right? We are completely freed because of Christ and his work for us. And, that, and that's really what we get at when we go, um, right, in the end of verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, right? So we're, the body of sin is brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And Ferguson says here, set free from obligation. And I really like this because he brings out these different ways that the scripture identifies 
sin, right? In Romans 5, 6, and 7, where he says, sin is portrayed as a king who reigns, right? In uh, chapter 5, verse 21, where sin reigned in death. Or in chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, do not let sin reign. Or as a general who employs our bodies as weapons in his warfare, right? The instruments or weapons of wickedness in chapter 6, verse 13. Sin is also as a master who tyrannizes, right? In, verse, in chapter 6, verse 14. Sin shall no longer be your master. And sin is also portrayed as an employer who pays wages. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. And brothers and sisters, through our participation in Christ, through our union to Christ, it is from these aspects that we have been freed. And it's these indicatives that explain our union with Christ and that through the Holy Spirit, that these are then worked out in the imperatives or commands of verses 11 through 14. And that's really what I want us to turn our attention to next as we kind of work our way through Romans chapter 6. So we see in verses 11 through 14 where Paul then lays out these imperatives, right? So as a result of your union with Christ, believer, this is how you then should live. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And to me, this is even the more remarkable, right? Believer, you need to think and consider or account yourself to be what you already are. You are, in union with Christ, dead to sin. Therefore, consider yourself dead to sin. Believer, you are new in Christ. Therefore, you need to reckon or account or think of yourself as someone who is alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Ferguson says, furthermore, with the commands, do not let sin reign existentially, since it has no authority over you actually. Right? In verse 12, it does not have sin no longer has authority over us. Or he says about verse 13. Do not allow your body to be offered in mercenary service to sin, attracted by the immediate pleasures it offers. Or verse, or verse 13, he also says, Deliberately, believer, deliberately yield yourself to the Lord as one who recognizes his new identity as someone who has been brought from death to life. If you will, put the members of your body in the arsenal of the Lord. Now, I say this as we read texts like this, where there is this radical break with sin. Sin no longer has dominion. We have been broken free in Christ. And then we can read those and then struggle because we struggle with sin. We still live in the already where sin still affects us. And so I want to say this word of caution. That we must remember we live in the already and the not yet. 
right, this theme that we've brought up multiple times, that there is a sense in which uh, we have all these things already in Christ, and yet at the same time, or in tension with this, we look forward to that not yet aspect of sanctification where we are completely freed, completely freed from sin on that glorious day with Christ. So we must guard from an over-realized eschatology where uh, we have this expectation of Christian perfectionism or that we think that somehow in this life we can attain to perfect obedience with the Lord. But we also must not have what's called an under-realized eschatology where really there's nothing present in the already, where our union with Christ would allow us to enjoy justification, but then divorce sanctification as one of the benefits of redemption from our union to Jesus. We must guard and be cautioned with both. So, on your notes, we've seen participation in Christ and this idea of union with Christ, the glorious reality of being identified with Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection. But now, Imitation of Christ. On your notes, imitation of Christ. Another aspect of sanctification and conformity to the image of Christ is imitating Christ's example. A text that is familiar to some of us is Luke 9.23 where Jesus talks about that we are to, that if anyone were to follow Christ, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Christ. So we see this example laid at our feet. But I want to turn and show a different example. Not wanting to spend too much time here, but want to at least bring out this reality. When we think about sanctification, we should also think about sanctification in regards to imitating the pattern that Jesus has set forward for us. So in 1 Peter 2, in verse 21, can I have a volunteer read 1 Peter 2, verse 21? Whoever gets there, you can go ahead and read. I'll read it. First Peter 2.21 It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Excellent. The fact, and this is to, I want to read a quote here from Ferguson, where he says, The fact of our participation And communion with Christ through the Spirit makes imitation possible. The exhortations of the New Testament, right, the commands, the let us, they give that imitation concrete form and specific direction. And we're we're going to hone in more on this in our upcoming section on the Spirit and the law. So I won't go into too much details, but we'll just note that here. And one last text. Just go back into your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you remember, this is uh, Jesus um, in the upper room with his disciples. Again, hopefully a familiar text. Where Jesus says in John 13, in verses 14 and 15. John 13, verses 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you what? 
an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. And I want it to just be noted that it's important that we not just look at Christ as Christ sacrificed Christ, Christ sacrifice for us, but there are other realities that we must bring out that the Scripture provides for us. And I think, like we have here, this is one of them. In fact, there's other texts that Ferguson brings out that time uh, will not permit, but Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, or Romans 15, verses 1 through 7, excellent texts that really remind us that Christ did not come to please himself. He came in humility, right? And then that sets the example for the church to then follow. So, any questions or any comments with what we've covered so far? Uh, Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. All right, excellent. So let's get into it. So now we're going to get into spirit against flesh. And I will tell you, uh, this is one of those things. When I think about um, the Holy Spirit and sanctification, this is one of the things that my mind runs to, right? The spirit against the flesh, right? And we see this contrast. Uh, We see it uh, especially throughout the New Testament, So, we've covered this definitive break with sin and coming as a result of our union with Christ. But one of the things that we've talked about and that we're reminded of now as we think about spirit against flesh is that we are not completely free from sin's tempting power and influence in us in this present age. And Ferguson uh, going off of Gerhardus Voss, reminds us, when we think about spirit and flesh, it's not just a New Testament reality. He talks about in Isaiah 31, 3, where he says, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And this brings us all the way back to the beginning of our first couple of lessons on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, when spirit conveys this idea of power, of inertia, of movement, right? And flesh is its opposite. It's lacking. And so we see this idea really come to, 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 to um, fruition when we look at a text like John six sixty three, where Jesus said, the flesh is unprofitable, where he says, it is the spirit who gives life. Or in John uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, where Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So it is the flesh that is unprofitable, but it is the spirit who gives life. One classic text that really brings context and definition to the struggle between flesh and spirit is Romans chapters 5 through 8. And I know, you know, we've gone there multiple times. We're just going to keep going, right? And we're going to keep going in our other sections just because there is so much in, in these couple of chapters. Not to say that there's not another, but this is where we're going to really um, make a landmark for this week's lesson. In Romans chapters 5 and 6, 
we have life contrasted with life in Christ versus life in Adam. And then in Romans chapter 7 and 8, we have, um, we have a contrast life in Christ through the spirit versus life in the flesh. Or if you will, spirit versus flesh. And life in the flesh or life in the spirit is the outworking of who we are united to. It's the outworking, it's outworking will be whose image we will reflect. Will we reflect Christ or will we reflect Adam? Fallen Adam. So, question. How would you characterize life in the flesh? And that's not meant to be rhetorical. I know I need to qualify because I like to answer my own questions. So, how would you characterize life in the flesh? Yeah, Ronnie. Um, I guess you just go with the, the whatever you're, I guess, drawn to. Yes. To. Yes. Yep. Yep, I definitely think there's going to be an aspect of that, right? Those natural desires, which has the um, uh, sinful tendencies and other things associated with it. No, 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 but you're on, no, you're on the right track. But it's, it's basically those natural things. Yeah. Yes, yep, in a fallen state. Yep. Heather? Yes, yes. They, they, they become um, the, the, the seat of judgment to rule over... Yes. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Crystal. I want to piggyback off of that, but like your moral compass is your own, whatever yes. you make of it. And so then you live your life according to your rules, your regulations, your ways, kind of whatever it is you want to do in that moment, that's what you do. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. 100%. Excellent. No, I think we are rightly, rightly building what we'll see um, the New Testament unpacks as life according to the flesh. Ferguson, speaking of life in the flesh, says the characteristics of life in the flesh include self-absorption, self-reliance and indulgence, dependence on outward ceremony and ritual instead of inner spiritual reality. Now, I would really like for us just to read all of Romans 8 and spend like three hours just unpacking the realities there, but we're not going to do that. We're going to, you know, keep in uh, the time, con- uh, time constraints we've been given. But go, go to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read uh, verses uh, 7 through 13. Romans 8, and we will read verses 7 through 13. And if I can have a volunteer read 7 through 13. Okay. 
All right, excellent. Right, and we really see this come to the front in verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Two different existences. Instead, we are to walk in line with who we are. We are in the Spirit, and therefore, we are to walk according to the Spirit. When we look at verse 5. Right, And then in verse 12, it says that we are debtors, right? But it really, when it says we are debtors, but then it it specifies. We are not debtors to the flesh, almost as, as a reminder. But then it asks the question, then we are debtors to whom? And we are debtors to the Spirit. In verse 13, we are to mortify or put to death that which is already dead, right in verse 13. And how, if we look at verse 13, but if, what? By the Spirit you put to death, right? It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we put to death what is already dead in Christ. And instead, in line with being debtors to the Spirit, we are to vivify or Bring, um, bring life to that which is already alive by the Spirit. And some of us may be familiar with John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, which really is just an unpacking of verse 13. And it's really just an unpacking of part of verse 13, where he goes on to lay out helpful encouragements to the believer about mortifying or putting to death sin in the life of a believer. But then Owen would also teach us from his other writings of what's called vivification, right? So if mortification is the putting to death of something, vivification is the bringing to life of something. And that is the breathing of life by the Spirit in righteousness. In fact, so we notice the same spirit against flesh tension, not only in Romans, but also turn with me to Galatians, just as a quick example before we... uh, head into our next our next section so uh go with me to galatians um galatians chapter two and if i can have someone uh someone can get galatians 220 and then can someone also get galatians 517 who can get 220 for me 220 Excellent. So we see this radical break as a result of being crucified with Christ. And now it's Christ who lives in me, um, and it's a life lived out in faith. Now, um, if I can have someone read Galatians 5.17... Excellent. So it's the same reality that we see working out in Romans chapter 8 
the flesh versus the spirit, even here in Galatians 2, where we're identified and in union with Christ in him crucified. And yet at the same time, we are reminded about the desires of the flesh and are against the desires of the spirit. They're opposed to one another. And that's when we get to, um, and, and, that, and then we look at verse 16, where Paul gives us the command and the result. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? So when we walk in alignment to the Spirit, it'll be against the flesh, and it'll be uh, unto the Lord. Now, Ferguson brings out a really interesting parallel. If you'll keep a finger in Galatians 2.20, which we've already read, and then I, I want to read Romans 7.17. 7, and he makes an interesting remark. And unfortunately, he then has a whole section on Romans 7 as the Christian's present existence that we see uh, exemplified in the Apostle Paul in verses 14 through 25. Unfortunately, we will not get the joy of getting to work through that together. So I would commend you to his section. I mean, I commend you the whole book, right? But uh, to that in particular, as we will not be able to cover that. So let me read Romans 7, verses 7 uh, verse 17, where Paul says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now notice the similarity here to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice that. Do you see these two things happening together in the believer at the same time? time. Galatians 2.20. No longer I who live. Um, uh, um, uh, um. And then we see in Romans 7 verse 17. It is no longer I who do it. Right? Or as um, in Galatians 2.20 where he says, but Christ who lives in me, in contrast to Romans 7.17, which says, but sin that dwells within me. And I want to bring this out from what Ferguson says. I thought this was super helpful. Here is the most baffling element of the Christian's present status. The situation is not that of two equal powers opposing one another. Grace is reigning through righteousness. We are not in the flesh, but in the spirit but for that very reason, the tension and conflict are all the more bitter and urgent. And like I said, Ferguson then goes into Romans 7, which we will not get the joy of going through together right now. So on your notes, our next section is the spirit and law. The spirit and law. So we briefly hinted at this when we were talking about spirit and imitation, how it is the commands that bring in concrete form what's laid out for us in the life of Christ or in the more general exhortation to love God and to love our neighbor. So Ferguson asks, what is the relationship to the ministry of the spirit to the law? And this question is challenging because it requires gelling together many texts and working out a systematic thought that captures the development 
of the biblical idea of law from creation through the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant. And there are texts that state Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in Ephesians chapter 2 or in Romans 6.14. For we are not under law, but under grace. And yet Jesus, Paul, and others will quote the Ten Commandments as binding on God's people. We see this in Ephesians 6 or in Romans 13 or in Mark chapter 12 and verses 30 through 34. And again, I commend Ferguson's entire book to you as I find it extremely helpful. But his section here provides excellent material with the historic threefold division of the law. Additionally, uh, I would encourage us to read chapter 19 of our church's confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, regarding the law of God. And while I would thoroughly enjoy getting to really dive into this, I really just want to highlight a couple of things that bring out the elements of law related to the Holy Spirit. Okay, actually, I'm going to take that back. I think actually on our notes, yeah, in our notes, I do have that. In uh, chapter 19 and verse 7 of our confession, it says, These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. So I want to look at a couple of key texts. So uh, let's, go, let's go back to the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31. So Jeremiah 31, and we're going to look at verses 31 to 33. And I want to highlight th- these realities and the implications that result to us as believers in Christ. <clears throat> so Jeremiah 31, and if I can have a volunteer read uh, verses 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Excellent. And I, and I slept us there even though there's more glorious realities in verse 34, because I want to highlight and hone in on um, uh, what the new covenant brings to bear to all of God's people who are in the covenant community, um, even though these realities are present in the uh, Old Testament in types and shadows, they were not experienced by the whole community that we do find in the New Covenant. But in verse 33, I would like us to hone in on where he says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And that I think is really important. So one of the things that we'll see that the Spirit of God does is he takes the law that was written by the finger of God and then he writes it no longer like, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 on tablets of stone, but what? On tablets of the heart. 
right? And this is a new covenant reality through the Spirit of Christ. And turn with me, because I, I want to then bring out, well then, what does that reality look like to have the Spirit write the law in our heart that we have as believers in Christ? So turn with me to one more book over, or Lamentations and then Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, because God, through the prophet Ezekiel, really helps to delineate a reality that we're going to see in Romans chapter 8. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And if I can have a volunteer read verses 26 and 27 of Ezekiel 36. Excellent. So we see this glorious reality that takes place with the renewing and regenerating power of the Holy Spirit when he applies the law to our heart. And then notice in verse 27, when he puts his spirit within us, what happens as a result? He's not done, right? But he will then what? Cause us to walk in what? His law right? His statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is the reality that the spirit is the one who now empowers us to walk in the law of God. That we are, according to the spirit, his people that can keep the law, though imperfectly, but we can keep the law as a rule of life. Now, I want to, to bring us to Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. And I'll start out in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, because I think Paul brings some of these ideas out very helpfully. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Now pause. Based on everything we've read in verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, how would you complete that sentence? Would you complete that sentence with, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? Or would your response more easily gravitate to that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Christ, right? And everything we've seen so far in verse 3, that's where, from my mind, that's where my mind's going, right? Is Paul's going to say, and this is everything that Christ has fulfilled, meeting the righteous requirement of the law. But that's not what Paul says. Right? What Paul is bringing out is that a part of the reality of being in union with Christ, freed from condemnation from the law, now, through the Spirit, we fulfill that righteous requirement of the law, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that difference is, 
according to the flesh does not have the power to obey the law, to love the Lord in expression with proper submission to the law. But instead, through the power of the Spirit, we can obey the Lord through what He's commanded in His law. And this really, when we unpack the rest of Romans chapter 8 and similar texts that we've read, in fact, let me just read verses 7 and 8 real quick. In verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But we, believers in Christ, those who are in union to Christ, we are not in the flesh, right? And so we could read, if you will, the opposite of that. That because we have the Spirit, we can submit, in verse 7, to God's law, right? And then when it says, indeed, the flesh cannot, it's talking about ability. But that ability has been granted to us through the Spirit in Christ. And we could say the same in verse 8. And so one last thing before we go into our last and final section on kingdom against kingdom. Keep your finger real quick and just turn to Romans 13. I've I've mentioned this, but I just want to say it. Where it says in verse 10, Romans 13, 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you will, the law is not what energizes us in obedience to Christ, right? That is the spirit, right? We don't want to get those confused. But like we read in our confession, chapter 19, 19, uh, verse 7, but it is the law, the moral law, the commands of God that give concrete expression to that love for the Lord. What should that love look like? So the law points and guides us and, the, and love energizes and completes or fulfills that desire and that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So lastly, we go to kingdom against kingdom on your notes. And this is another element. Again, when you think, when you think of the Spirit and you think of sanctification, maybe some of you, what comes to mind is spiritual warfare. We are in a spiritual warfare, and we are not to fight with carnal or fleshly weapons, right? But in fact, we are to fight with spiritual weapons, right? We, and we see this clear, uh, clearly laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as a result, we are commanded, believer, put on the whole armor of God. And this includes, in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I love what Ferguson brings out here. 
Because he brings out this tension that exists, this war that exists within us, right? The spirit versus flesh tension that we already find present within us. That's Romans 7 reality. But then he brings up that then this spiritual warfare is, in one sense, almost something outside of us. It's this cosmic battle, if you will, with Satan and all of his minions, all of his demons against the Lord, His anointed, His people, and His angels. This whole end-time conflict, right? But it's this conflict that not only has been underway, but it has been heightened with Christ's coming, with Christ's life, with His death, and with His resurrection. And why is that? And I want to read a text from uh, Matthew. In Matthew 16... In verse 18, all right, I didn't write it down. Let me turn there real quick. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, this is on the heels of the confession of Peter, where he confesses Jesus as the Christ. And then in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, it is easy for us to see this verse and think of it as the Christian on defense, right? That we are under attack, but we have been secured in a fortress, and it's impenetrable, and no one can break in, right? And Satan will, 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 will not break through. But that's not what, and and those are um, truths that are expressed in other passages of Scripture. What this text is showing us is the church on attack. It is the church on the offensive. And what this is essentially saying is that Jesus will do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants, and no one will stop him, not even the strongest gates of hell. They cannot stop Jesus from busting them down and ransoming anyone that he wants. And that is what has heightened this kingdom conflict. Because Jesus, in full-fledged, with his coming and sending of the Spirit, is doing this very thing as sovereign Lord. To use Ferguson's words, This is the war zone in which the kingdom of God advances against the powers of darkness. The church, as Jesus said, faces the gates of hell. And Ferguson says, There is an important parallel here to the end of the dominion of sin. Its reign in our bodies has been rendered null and void, albeit its presence is not yet finally destroyed. Similarly, Christ has overcome the devil on the cross and disarmed him. Colossians 2.15, Ephesians 2.2. The conflict of the church and the believer with satanic forces is possible only because we have been set free from his thraldom. It is intensified because of the continuing presence of of sin in the believer. And Ferguson 
brings this to a close when he so helpfully states when we stop for a second and consider who it is we are against, not just against sin, not just against the flesh, but when we think of this cosmic battle against Satan. And Ferguson brings out, Satan is presented in the New Testament in a broad range of roles of which the Christian must be cognizant, against which he or she must be well defended. He says, Satan is the hinderer in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12.10. He is the devil, the slanderer. In fact, we even see that he is the one who sets up traps, like it says in 2 Timothy 2.26, the devil's snare. He is the tempter in Matthew 4.3. And the plaintiff or adversary who opposes us and seeks, in Peter's words, in 1 Peter 5.8, to devour us. For this reason, the central imperative of this element of sanctification is this. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray. And so... This brings us to a close when we think about the Holy Spirit and sanctification from what we've talked about in our previous lesson related to our union with Christ by the Spirit and through faith, and that sanctification is conformity to the likeness of Christ or Christiformity. And then we've even seen in this week's lesson this already not yet tension Right with the Spirit, when we think of our imitation of Christ and the Spirit against the flesh and the Spirit and the law and this cosmic battle with kingdom against kingdom. And all in all, how we are reminded, like we said, to not have an over-realized view of sanctification where sanctification is really Christian perfection and we are down and depressed, and the Christian life is very heavy, and yet is not under-realized, where we don't bring these realities to bear, that sin has been broken, that we are freed from its bondage. He is no longer king over us. We are no longer in union to Adam, but we are in union to Christ. So, uh, with this, any, any questions or comments before we close? All right, let's go to the Lord. Let's thank him for this morning. Father, we thank you for this time and for your word and that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, continue to renew us, shape us. May we, by greater and greater degrees, reflect the glory of Christ as we behold Christ through the power of the Spirit. Enable us to do this now in Jesus' name. Amen.